0: This is the Jocko Unraveling Podcast, Episode 2, with Daryl Cooper and me, Jocko Willink. I know that the last episode, you know, we wrapped up with a pretty harrowing account. And you kind of said, well, we'll move on to other things, but I got to keep us there for one more um, account here. It goes like this. Horror in Saddam's Iraq takes endless forms. In 1987-1988, Iraqi Air Force helicopters sprayed scores of Kurdish villages with a combination of chemical weapons, including mustard gas, sarin, and VX, a deadly nerve agent. Scores of thousands of Kurds, most of them women and children, died horrible deaths. Of those who survived, many were left blind or sterile or crippled with agonizing lung damage. But most of the Kurds slaughtered in that season of mass murder were not gassed but rounded up and gunned down into mass graves. Those victims were mostly men and boys and their bodies have never been recovered. In one village near Kirkuk, after the males were taken to be killed, The women and small children were crammed into trucks and taken to a prison. One survivor, Salma Aziz Baban, described the ordeal to to journalist Jeffrey Goldberg, who reported on Saddam's war against the Kurds in the New Yorker in March. More than 2,000 women and children were crammed into a room and given nothing to eat. When some starved to death, the Iraqi guards demanded that the body be passed to them through a window in the door. Aziz's six-year-old son grew very sick. She says he knew he was dying. There was no medicine or doctor. He started to cry so much. He died in his mother's lap I was screaming and crying she told Goldberg we gave them the body it was passed outside and the soldiers took it soon after she pushed her way to the window to see if her child had been taken for burial she saw 20 dogs roaming in the field where the dead bodies had been dumped. She said, I looked outside and saw the legs and hands of my son in the mouths of the dogs. The dogs were eating my son. Then I lost my mind. and that is from an article called Saddam's Shop of Horrors written by Jeff Jacoby. And that was from the Boston Globe in uh, 2002. So, you know, that's 2002, right? It's not like, it's not like we didn't know that this stuff was happening. Right, we didn't invade until 2003, this is 2002. We know what's going on in there. So, where does that kind of, um, where does that guy come from?
1: How much do you know about his origin story? I know a pretty yeah. decent amount. I mean, it's a, it's a super villain origin story in some ways. Com- completely. Um, you know, he, his father and brother die of cancer while his mother's pregnant. His mother is so depressed that she tries to abort Saddam, but he survives. And so she just abandons him, and he goes to stay with an uncle for a while. He eventually comes back to his mother after she remarries, but the stepfather just abuses him terribly, and so he flees and goes back. It's like, well, that's how you start. That's, that's, those, are the, those are the opening ingredients for how you get a, a guy like this. But it, I think it's important to remember, too, like the stuff you're reading right there, all this stuff that happened. One guy does not do that. Yep. One person cannot do that. Hitler can't commit the Holocaust by himself. you know. And Saddam could not create that terror state all, all by himself either.
0: Yes. Um, I'll tell you what, man. Leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield, and it's guys like Hitler and guys like Saddam. And man, they set the conditions. And then what's really scary is... You know, as we see in when atrocities take place, right? Sure, it's not it's not that leader. It doesn't take it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to 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 lead people down this road. Like all the all the all the, you know, you want to throw it out there that people are you know uh, naturally benevolent and they're naturally people want to help each other. I get it, and I I. I know that that is a thing to that you can convince yourself of and it's probably right in many cases in the right conditions uh, you change those conditions and it's 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 not a it's not a stretch it doesn't take as much as you would hope it takes to to lead people down this path it just that's the that's the horrible truth and that's why we have to be so Aware of it. That's why you have to understand it. You know, when we, the, when we did the podcast on the My Lai Massacre and the Sand Creek Massacre, and we went, we went through those, but when I did My Lai on my podcast, you know, those were normal people. Yeah. That, was a, that was a cross-section of America. Now, one of those, and I had this conversation with Jordan Peterson as well, which was, I had told an Army group that they had sadists in their platoon. Like I said, listen, you got, and I, and they were looking at me and i I talk to people a lot. I can read a crowd and they were looking at me as if I was, you know, a little bit crazy and maybe just, you know, trying to be extreme or whatever. And I, and I, and I I'm looking back at them and I'm thinking, oh, they, they don't believe me right now. They don't believe me. They think I'm wrong or they don't believe me or, or this is just hyperbole and no, no, no. And then, so I said, Oh, wait, wait a second. You guys are looking at me like, I, like, I don't know what I'm talking about here. Like you're like you're going to be in a platoon, and this was actually um, young, you know, uh, uh, officers on the way to being commissioned. So what is it, officer candidates or cadets? And I said, you're looking at me like I don't know what I'm talking about right now. And and I said, let me let me ask you this: if I'm wrong, then how did how did unfold? How did that happen? If if you've got a platoon or a company. And there's 150 guys, and there's no bad apples in there. How does that happen?
1: That one, that one company just happened to get all the bad guys. Every bet, ba- yeah.
0: and you know when I when I I actually drilled down a little bit with Jordan Peterson, and I said, hey, you know, this is what I told these army guys. I said I told them in a platoon, they got a sadist in there. Am I right? And I think I think I said murderer too. You know, which I don't know what the I don't know what how you draw that line, but. He said, well, he said, oh, how many people in a platoon? I said, 40. And he goes, oh, yeah, you're good. You're, you're in. You're in. And especially because there's a whole chunk of civilization that just don't go in the military. Right? And that chunk that just doesn't want to go in the military, almost none of them are sadists. Right? You, as soon as you're in the military, you have a higher percentage of, you know, what are you, what are you signing up for? I'm signing up to shoot people. And kill people. That's what I'm signing up to do. So there's a there's a whole element that's already gone. So one out of forty. It's pretty 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 nice. Pretty generous. And so as we talk about this, it's like yes, I get it that it wasn't all Saddam clearly, but man, you you he absolutely set the conditions for this. Yeah. And that was the other thing interesting thing about the Mili massacre is that it was one officer, you know Thompson. Who had flown in, saw what was happening, flew back, flew back to headquarters, said these guys are murdering people. So tell, you need to stop it. And the the commanding officer gets on the horn and says, "Hey, stop killing people." And they were like, "Okay, they stopped," like instantly. Yeah, it's instantly. You wouldn't believe if you saw that in a movie. You wouldn't believe it.
1: Like waking up from a dream.
0: You wouldn't believe it if you saw in a movie. Oh, are they just gonna stop now? No, that's what happened. They got told no, and they stopped. I wish
1: I would have brought. I read an account by a guy who was a member of ISIS. And he had this—he had done it all, sex, slavery, killing—I mean, everything. And he sort of—he describes it as like waking up from a dream. He's in the middle of massacring a village, of an assault on a village, and he snaps out of it and goes, what am I doing? And he found his way out of it after that. And He, he talks about this stuff now. I have to—I'll I'll yeah, bring let's... some of that in tomorrow. Um And you wonder, like, okay, that's a guy who's capable of waking up and saying, what am I doing? That's the same guy who was, he's raped, he has murdered children with conviction, doing it with conviction. You know, um, we're we're complex creatures, and uh, we're very adaptable creatures, and we can adapt to whatever environment we find ourselves in. And I think one of the things that, you know, we have certain models that we use for uh, thinking about other people's behavior. And we think about, you know, we think about like the French resistance in Germany, right, or the partisans out in the east when, when Germany overran them. We think, well, they didn't give up, right? They just kept fighting and they resisted the power. Okay, what if, what if it's over? Hitler won because that's what happened in Iraq. Hitler won. It's over. And now you've got to adapt yourself to that society because nobody's coming to save you. You know, not until 2003 at least I mean that's, that's it and you got to figure out how to survive in a place where um, you don't just get killed for treason you get killed because you know somebody's having a paranoid attack and that's it or, or somebody needs to send a message to a bunch of other people it's got nothing to do with you and you got to figure out how to navigate that uh, people can become very different creatures than uh, they kind of naturally devolve into when they live in Vermont <laughs> You know.
0: Um, I've seen some pretty devolved creatures up in Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh actually Vermont's probably a place where you wouldn't evolve, you'd get better, you'd become a better person up there in the in the woods, in the sticks. So let's go back to Saddam. Yeah. where, where, where were we at? Have, where you, we
1: have you ever seen the video? It's an amazing video. The video um when he at the me, at the Bathist meeting where he took power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It Absolutely. is. in. I, I tell everybody to watch it and watch him. Yeah. And so for the people who haven't seen it, um, there's like a nine minute version out there that kind of cuts it short. You can go see the thing. But um, he's got all. So he's taken over. Right. From General Kasim, who's the guy before him. And he's taken power and he calls all the Bathist party leaders and senior senior membership into this assembly hall. And there, you know, some people are talking and everything. Saddam strides up, and he is—I mean, you watch him, and he is just like either a great actor or what—he is confident. He is just striding up there with an arrogant pose, and he starts speaking about the traitors that are out there and all the people that are besetting the country of Iraq and the party, and blah blah blah. And the people are like, "Yeah, okay." And he reaches down and just slowly pulls this big long cigar out of his pocket and lights it. And he's on there on stage, and he starts smoking this cigar. And he just starts saying, if I call your name, stand up and go to the back of the room. And people are kind of start to look around at each other. He's planned all this. So he's having it filmed. And he knows who's going to be called. So like the camera will go to some of them sometimes. And as he's calling his names, people are kind of looking like, what is going on? They know what's going on, but they're just, they don't know what to do. And so they get up and they head to the back where the guards are. And finally, one guy goes, stands up and he says, wait, why did you call me? I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And Saddam just says... If I call your name, please stand up and go to the back with the guards. And the guy just goes back and people go back. And people are starting to look at each other and realizing, like, what's happening here. And uh, that these guys are being called back to go be executed. And then afterwards, he up, he says a few words. And all of a sudden, the people just break out. Long live Saddam. Long live Saddam. And they're all giving him, like, a big standing ovation. Because what else are you going to do in that situation, right? And uh, you know, this is a guy who was in power for over, you know, for almost 30 years, for 25 years. And he had a long, long period of time to find exactly the people to put into positions who were going to do exactly what he needed them to do to keep control of that, of that society. And the rest of the people there had to figure out how to survive under that. I mean, from uh, the moment Saddam... Takes power. He is at war, essentially. You know, 1979, he takes power and he's at war with Iraq the next, uh, with Iran the next year. And it's it's a war that kind of gets lost today. A lot of people just slide right past it. I mean, it was one of the, it was probably the worst war in the second half of the 20th century in a lot of ways, at least the way it was fought.
0: For sure. Brutal.
1: Over a million killed. Um, You know, devolving to a point where the two sides are just launching. You know, uh, uh, ballistic missiles at each other's cities, just population centers indiscriminately just launching them at each other. You know, chemical weapons being used on population centers purely to terrorize, you know, to to let people know that you better not rise up.
0: And uh, this at this point, Saddam's pretty, a pretty secular leader. Yeah. I mean, this isn't a guy that's uh, out, you know, touting Islam as the uh, as the rule of law around Iraq.
1: He would stay that way till the '90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Baathist Party is a secular, kind of socialist, pan Arab, Arab nationalist party, and um, you know that's why you know, one of the things I think people really, really lose a little bit today is they think of, like, America and the Middle East, that we've just been over there pulling the strings like the puppet masters from all the way back, like from 1776 or something, that that's what we've been doing. When, you know, CENTCOM wasn't even stood up until 1983. You know, the Iran-Iraq War been going on for three years. This is ten years after the oil crisis, and Central Command's not even stood up. And I remember after the USS Stark got hit, the frigate got hit uh, by a cruise missile in 1987, even in 1987, the response to that from a lot of the Navy brass was, why are we over there? What are we What are we doing here? You know, we were very much reacting to events, and we didn't know a lot about who these people were. You know, uh, when, when somebody like Saddam comes along, he seems like a secular nationalist-type leader. He's got some worrying tendencies, but he's only been around a year. And meanwhile, we've got the Iranians over here who just— took over with like an extreme Islamist revolution, overran our embassy, took a bunch of our people hostage and are are starting to act out in some pretty extreme ways. And so that's the context that Saddam comes into the picture. And all of a sudden he wants to fight with Iran. And he's got a big Soviet army. You know, the Iranians unfortunately have a pretty well-equipped military as well because we were the Shah's, you know, we were his friend before that. And so they took possession. We had just in the last few years before 1979 had sold him a bunch of F-15s and a bunch of just great aircraft. And it gave Saddam fits in the war because of that. But, I mean, they had a pretty well-equipped army. You know, we had been equipping Iran as an ally for years. And now you have this... Revolutionary government.
0: Yeah, this is yeah. when you see the pictures of Iran in 1974 and the women are wearing miniskirts out in town and it looks like a metropolitan yeah. Western country.
1: Yeah. And, I, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons that a lot of people get on my case because I, uh, I tend to give Saudi Arabia a little bit more of a break than a lot of people I know. And the reason I do it, though, is as opposed to a place like Iran where Iran was a certain way, you know, where women were free, and it was a relatively modern place. And then they had this revolution that said, nope, no more of that. And presumably a lot of those people who were enjoying their lives back in the day still live there. And now they have to live under this regressive, you know, in this regressive manner. Saudi Arabia, however, however they look to us, obviously it's not acceptable. And, you know, according to the way we do business, they're as liberal now as they've ever been. You know, it's a slow, long project, but yep. it's not like they were a certain way and then they got taken over by these crazy Islamists. And you know, uh, Iran's not that way. Iran was a relatively free and open secular country. You know, where women were free, and uh, so all of a sudden you get this revolution. And, and the revolutionary part's important, right? Because it's not just a government that's kind of hostile now and maybe is doing things, passing laws, social social laws and stuff that we don't like. It's a rev- it's, it considers itself a revolutionary state like the Soviet Union did. So it's not just an enemy country. It's a revolutionary movement, and they're eyeing the rest of the Muslim world. You know, it's why they established Hezbollah in Lebanon. It's why now they're still trying to establish an Iraqi version of that like to this day. Is It's built into their system, into their ideology that this is an expansionist thing, that there's a larger project. So it, it doesn't just involve them. It involves the rest of the Muslim world. So that's very worrying to us in 1979. They've still got our people, you know, that they're holding captive from the embassy. Saddam comes along. He starts fighting with these people. And, of course, at first we're kind of like, all right, maybe this guy's all right. Let's see how this plays out, right? He hasn't done all the things he's going to do yet. Um, he's not a nice guy. We know that. Um, but we don't have the whole story, and we kind of have some hope. And so we start out in the Iran-Iraq war, and— You know, we're kind of hoping that maybe he can, you know, who knows, maybe create enough stress on the Iranian regime that they flip back over or something like Mm
0: -hmm. that. And you're also, you're also looking at the situation. You got a leader coming into power and you don't really, you you know, like you said, you know, he's bad, but you kind of think, well, he's stepping into power. He's going to want influence. He's going to need what we have. We can, how can we, how can we, uh, how can we bring him along? How can we bring him on our, our team? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that was definitely the thinking. And, um, you know, we didn't know who we were dealing with. We did not recognize the, the the level of of beast that we were dealing with with Saddam. And I think by the end of the 80s, we had a pretty good idea that that was the case um, because we'd end up at war with them ourselves shortly after that. I mean, but the Iranians, you know, again, like they, they seemed very dangerous at the time. This is a big country, large population, a well-equipped military, um, with an expansionist foreign policy and when they were fighting Iraq you know these are people who are who were who were sending human waves of teenagers across minefields to clear them with no weapons just sending human waves of kids across minefields to clear them out um, this is a, this was a regime that looked very very dangerous um, and they were dangerous um, we just maybe you know we allowed ourselves to get sucked into some illusions about you know how how controllable Saddam Hussein was that's for sure when uh yeah i think uh there's a lot of there's a lot we don't know about the casualties in the iran iraq war but most estimates have it between 800,000 and a million people it's a big war it's a big conventional war the battle of basra toward the end of it i think was the biggest battle since the second world war if i'm not mistaken maybe since one of the, one of the korean war uh, korean wars battles but um i think uh 65,000 Iranians and 25,000 Iraqis were killed. I mean, it's a big battle.
0: That's a big battle.
1: Um, You know, and a a set-piece battle. Uh, We're we're just not used to those kind of things anymore. There's a lot of trench warfare going on, and they are just... This is a war of attrition. I mean, literally, I mean, they're at the point toward the end where their manpower is depleted, and they're just launching scuds at each other's cities. You know? And um, it's a brutal thing. And, uh... That ends in 1988 um, month before that is when USS Vincennes shot down that Iranian airliner um, but as the Iranians now know from their recent experience yeah things happen
0: yeah I brought that up uh, I was surprised it wasn't brought up more um, after this recent incident you know and this is again you know when you start talking about the the, the theme of having a thread tie back to the but yeah the Vincennes, uh, shot down an Iranian airliner. W- w- However many souls were on board, you know, hundreds, hundred and fifty, or whatever yeah, two, that number is. 90, yeah. yeah, I mean, so it's a massive loss of life, and you know, we very, very, actually, very similar circumstances. When you pick that apart, you know, the the Iranian shooting down the airline, Iranian shoot down of the airline was it was so similar. Like the panic button's going off, you know, they there's there's uncertainty going on.
1: <sighs> I remember I, I had some people that I knew, not military people, who Um, When the Iranians shot down that airliner, they were kind of like, oh, something like that doesn't happen by mistake. I'm like, no, it totally, totally happens by mistake. (laughs) Very, very easy. You don't know who's running that thing. They've never been in combat before. You know that the person running that air defense battery has never been in combat. They've never had a situation where it counted. And uh, yeah, they're in a situation where they're probably expecting to be targeted. You're
0: all spun up. You're waiting to get attacked by the Americans. And all of a sudden, you know, you're. You're, you know, you and I can picture this. You probably actually, you better than me because you were in the, uh, in, in the combat Inf- information center. Is that it? What's yes. the CIC?
1: Yeah, that's it.
0: So you're in that on a ship and there's all of a sudden, you know, someone's going, hey, all right, we got it. We're tracking, we're tracking an inbound. And there's that spin up of the voice. And, and now you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a decision of what we're going to do. We see something on the radar, we're looking at it, we know we're vulnerable to attack right now, we're, we're anticipating attack. Oh, where's it heading, we're tracking it. Oh, guess where it's heading for us. All right, hey, we need to take this thing out. This is a missile, this is an attack, boom. This is a, it, This could so easily happen, it's ridiculous, actually, how easy it could happen.
1: In 87, when the Stark got hit by an Iraqi cruise missile, two, two cruise missiles, I think, the um, the TAO, Tactical Action Officer, and the commanding officer, they got disciplined for failing to defend their ship. And I I got to imagine, I mean, they're sitting there like, is this really happening right now? If I hit fire, am I going to kill a bunch of civilians? Like, that's a, that's a worrying thing, you know, and it's got to be a tough— t- I've never had to make any decision like that, obviously. And, uh, it, yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, especially if you're panicked. I have to imagine that night when the Iranians launched those missiles at us a few months ago— mm-hmm. Uh, they must have just been sitting on pins yeah. and needles, bracing
0: for impact,
1: especially with Trump. You know, you oh, know yeah. what that guy's going to do. And if he does <laughs> respond, you know it's going to be overwhelming. Yep. And uh, they had to have been bracing for impact. I mean, it up, uh, you know, they called ahead and everything supposedly, but I mean, golly, you just don't know.
0: And the Vincennes had had similar like spin ups yep. going into that shoot down as well, where. It it, that wasn't that wasn't a again. I'm not saying uh, not not making excuses, but sitting here and I can understand how that unfolds. I I always bring up the fact that in Ramadi there was blue on blue. You know, there was Humvees that shot at other Humvees. Yeah. So so think about that. You know, like Humvee, one of the most recognizable vehicles ever made, which is solely used by the U.S. military. And I, well, I guess we had Iraqis using it at that point as well, but the enemy was not driving around in Humvees. Uh, years later, ISIS was driving around in Humvees, but at that time, there was no one driving around in Humvees. No enemy. Yeah. And, and, you know, a young guy, paranoid and freaked out and scared, and, you know, sees a muzzle flash or sees whatever, and I'm going to engage. That's what happens. It's horrible.
1: No one that. You know, if you fail to act, then the next second you might be dead, and you just got to do it, and it's the wrong decision. but And and yeah, when you're dealing with something like air defense, you're not looking at an aircraft up there. You're looking at a blip on a radar screen, you know, at an aircraft that's out of visual range. Um, And so Saddam, uh, yeah, we're talking about Saddam. This guy comes into power in 79, starts executing people, starts terrorizing the population, immediately goes to war with Iran, has an eight-year-long war, it's... The bloodiest war of the second half of the 20th century, um, just a brutal, you know, horrible war that's fought with incredibly brutal tactics. Uh, that ends in late 1988, and you would think that, like, maybe Saddam would want to kind of take a breather, but it's not. It's not what this guy's
0: about. <laughs> and it was kind I mean. of a draw.
1: Yes, it came to a draw basically. Yeah, no, neither side achieved any, uh, you know, any gains through it. Saddam was the one who launched the war, and he didn't achieve any gains, so you could say he lost on that count. But yeah. But yeah, um, yeah. Nineteen—that's that, late 1988. By early 1989, Saddam is already telling Kuwait. So a lot of the other Arab countries were worried about Iran too. So they were financing Saddam. They were lo- loaning him money, things like that. And uh, already by early 1989, Saddam is telling Kuwait, "Hey, you're going to have to forgive that debt because we were defending you too, and we're not paying that 65 billion dollars." And Kuwait's not willing to do that. They say that we're, we're not going to do it. And Saddam's like, oh, you're going to do it. And um, by the next summer, summer in 1990, he's invading Kuwait. So no rest for the weary, right? And he's in, he does it in an unpredictable way. Um, I remember seeing an interview with Mubarak, the Egyptian president at the time, longtime Egyptian president. And we were allies with Mubarak. Um, we knew him well. And he was not just allies with – he was friends with Saddam Hussein by this point. He knew him. They would talk on the phone. And uh, he called Saddam on the phone, and he says, what's going on here? Are you going to invade Kuwait? And Saddam tells him, no, no, I'm just bluffing. Just don't worry about it. It's (laughs) it's totally fine. The next day, he invades Kuwait. Oh, oh, and so so actually, here's what happened. There's something else in there is uh, Mubarak comes and tells us that. He says, hey, he's bluffing. Don't worry about it. And so our ambassador at the time gets called in by Saddam, and uh, Saddam wants to feel him out, right? see how we're doing with this whole thing. And our ambassador had just heard from Mubarak, he's bluffing. Don't worry about it. Don't don't push him. And so he says, Oh, you know, Arab on Arab like affairs, that's not really our business. We're not we don't really we're not invested in this. And Saddam goes, All right. <laughs> and the next day he invades Kuwait, right? So Mubarak Nobody had any idea what was going on here. I mean, I don't even know if... I, I read that quote in the last episode that he tells somebody one thing, he tells another person another thing, and yeah. then after that, does, he does something completely different yeah. that surprises himself. It surprises that, himself. Yeah. And so maybe it was something like that. I mean, he, it's it's not beyond him to just yeah. make that decision. It, 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 that just day.
0: the mentality that you're dealing with. I mean, you go, you go in an eight-year war. And by the way, you're sitting in a place in a country that's got these incredible amount of natural resources. Oh, I mean, yeah. you could... Saddam Hussein could have lived... I'm going to say like live like a king, but like he could have lived cuz he did live like a king, but he could have lived like a peaceful king and just had an incredible Oh yeah. you know, an incredible existence,
1: especially with Iran right there threatening everybody. We would have been happy to make him the face of the Arab world. We would have been happy to do it. So
0: that's where you start, you know, that's where you start to really you know, look, when people are driven to some sadistic evil pathology, in their life because they don't really have a choice. Like you go, oh, I kind of understand that. Imagine, even if, you, even if you're like, let's say you take power and just to set everyone straight, you murder a bunch of people that you think might rise up against you. And then you look around and now everyone is just totally good to go. They're, 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 they're cheering for you. And you go, you know what? All right. Hey, we're good. I'm going to ride this out. I'm going to take advantage of this. And then maybe you're a little bit crazy and you go, you know what, though? I kind of want to be, you know, that guy. So I'm going to start a war with, with, you know, with Iran, with my neighbor over here. So you roll into that. You get them, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of your own people killed. You don't get what you want, but you know what? You get it. You, you, you finally end up with a truce. Everyone knows that you'll fight if needed. So now maybe you look around and you go, you know what? All right. i right, right. I've kind of... Established myself. Everybody knows not to mess with me. Um, I've got billions of dollars worth of oil. I've got security because my, you know, my, my, I've protected my borders. I'm good, I'm good, I'm gonna ride this one out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch Netflix and chill, right? <laughs> what kind of a person gets through all that and has the opportunity just to like do, to live a good life? And says, you know what, man, Kuwait looks pretty tasty. That's a that's a that's a really. And I guess you could make the same, you know, you could make the same argument with Hitler, right? You know, I mean, how much is enough? And you, you, how much is enough? You know, you're storming into Czechoslovakia, you're storming into Poland, you've got these great resources now. You know what, Russia, England, I'm going. <laughs> that that's like a a different mentality yeah and uh, yeah
1: and after kuwait's military stands down because they have no chance against iraq that guy now owns over 20 percent of the world's oil that guy (laughs) right that's what we're looking at and he's massing troops on the saudi arabian border which just down the eastern uh shore over there is where the vast majority of their oil is and so that's that guy's now got this place and this is right after the Cold War, right? The Soviet Union's still around in 1990, but the Wall fell in '89, and America's kind of the, the the big dog now. and Everybody knows that. And George H. W. Bush is president, and he says this is kind of an opportunity to show the world, you know, what the American-led global order is going to be going to be like. And um, he, one of the things we got to remember about this, I think it, this gets twisted up in our heads a little bit now that the Gulf War was kind of, you know, because it went so well and everything just kind of, because of the way the Iraqi army fell apart, we were not sure about that going in. Yeah,
0: for sure. So, Seaman Recruit Willink uh, joined the Navy, shipped out September 13th, 1990. Yes so, you know, we hadn't started yet, so there was still a lot of unknowns. Yeah. And man, I was fired up. And I remember, and I'll have to try and find this some at some point in my life. I remember hearing they anticipate forty thousand casualties yes. in the first forty-eight hours, yep. and I thought, man, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get after it. You know, I was, I was fired up, and you know, I just had a guy on um, who was there for for the push up. He's in the Marine Corps, and like, hundred percent, hundred percent, thought we thought or the U.S. military. I wasn't there, but the guys that were on the ground there, hundred percent thought. We're going to get, you know, there's going to be chemical, biological attacks. That's what's going to happen. Mop level, you know, they're in and out of their mop level suits all day long. Putting the gas mask on, putting them away. I mean, we 100%. And so as soon as you start throwing chemical and biological weapons into this scenario, you're you're going to lose. You're going to lose a lot of guys. I, I can't even. It's the straight. You're, did you ever have to put on mop gear? Yeah. Did it not, like, strike you as the saddest excuse for like something that's gonna save your life. Yeah. For instance, on the, like first of all, it's in two pieces, right? Mm. So you've got like these pants on. They're not even They're not even like a bib that would come up high on your, they're just pants. Yeah. You put them on over your regular pants. There's a drawstring. There's not a belt, there's a drawstring. So you just pull this thing tight and then you put a jacket on over your upper body. So there's, uh, you, 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 there's a gap, big gap. Yeah. Like this is going to save you. Yeah. Is that what we're saying? And, and
1: you got a maneuver in the desert.
0: It's yeah. Like, and that's all fine. That's all <laughs> like take, take all the maneuvering out of it. I'm just saying, if you put me in that suit and you said, okay, I'm going to put you expose you to chemical weapons. Now I'd be like, cool. Appreciate it. I got a 20% chance of living. And yeah. it's only if I can run away quick enough. I had no faith in those suits and we had good suits too. Like we had the good ones. I had this blower contraption that when you put on your gas mask, it would, It would give you it would it would send positive airflow into your into your into your uh, mask. So it was like really nice. Uh, Yeah. So it's very strange.
1: There were estimates um, that had the first Marines you know the first marines just rampaged through the Iraqi <laughs> army for sure when they went up but there were estimates going in saying that they might lose 10 to 15,000 yeah. Yeah. on the first on the first push there were estimates that said we might lose one out of five aircraft on the first attack and so we didn't you, you know the guys who were planned the military guys Colin Powell General Schwarzkopf these were these were JOs in Vietnam and so when we were looking at doing this we were hesitant at first for you sure. Know, it started off with, like, George Bush was like, we need to make a statement here. But a lot of the military guys are like, I've seen this movie. Like, I want clear political objectives. And more than that, I want overwhelming force. Yep. And gladly, that's what Bush gave him. We brought six carrier strike groups in there. Yep. We brought the 7th Corps down from <laughs> Europe. We brought the first Marines and the Marine Expeditionary Force. We had Arab allies. We had a bunch of We came rolling deep. Well, <laughs>
0: 300,000, 400,000 yes. troops. What yeah. was the number? Do you know the number uh, off not, the top of your head?
1: It was over 400,000 when you count the Arab allies and stuff. Yeah. And six carrier strike groups. I mean, we, we hit it hard. And I think that even our own side didn't quite realize how far we had come technologically. Now, Saddam thought... This is some, there's some lessons learned on both sides that ended up coming back to bite us both um, in the first Iraq war. Saddam thought this is a technological power. These Americans are technicians. They're not soldiers. And, um, you know, all of their fancy gears. not—they can't win a war. And so we hit him hard. Watch this. <laughs> we hit him hard. We drive him out of Kuwait. But when we didn't pursue him, he thought we were afraid to. Yeah. You know, he thought we were afraid to go pursue him and fight. And, um, I was,
0: of, I got to, uh, I guess it must have been, like, 93, 94, I guess it was, okay, 94, 94, when I was in Kuwait, and, you know, we would, we were going out to the desert to train, but we went up the highway of death, and, like, still there was, just littered. yeah, there was vehicles, you know, destroyed, and, man, you ever heard about the, um, again, now we're talking about it's not just Saddam, but there's there were there were maybe you've heard the story. There were Kuwaiti there were there were places where they had Kuwaiti women. Nine months later, where they had these orphan kids, because so many Kuwaiti women had been raped yeah. by the by Saddam's soldiers, that they had these orphans. Pretty much, have you heard that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's no, there was no limits. There were all sorts of atrocities they committed in Kuwait, while they knew the whole world was watching. That's the crazy part about it. You know, he had a level of arrogance, and I mean, which led to a lot of bad decision making on Saddam Hussein's part. Um, you know, he thought he thought his military was ready. He thought we were gonna you know, get a bloody nose like, you know, if we t- tried to go after him. And he, he blamed the loss on his general. He had a bunch of his generals executed oh, afterwards. Sure. He blamed it on his military leadership and on the cowardice of like, you know, some of, the, some of the officers who had just let order break down. He did not accept that he had lost that war. And he thought we were afraid to go after him.
0: And it is kind of strange when you think about it, how quickly they broke down. Because you, well, here's um, what you'd think and like wait you just got out of an eight-year war with yeah. Iran you are hardened combat soldiers Yeah, that's very strange. I wouldn't have predicted that yeah, you know I, I some, some sometimes I talk about the fact that I don't bet on the UFC You know the, the ultimate fighting championship I don't bet on the UFC and the reason why is because there have been I'll say about ten times in my and I've been following the UFC since it started there's been about 10 times where I knew I had inside information like, you know, cause I'm friends and training partners and training with people and training with people that were about to fight. I had inside information where I would have easily said, Oh, I'll bet the house. I'll bet my, you know, I'll bet next year's paychecks that this guy's going to win. And sure enough, I'd lose. I would have lost. And I, I realized you know, there's been a couple times where I had good inside information, it played out just the way I thought it would. But as Joe Rogan says, it's a fight. Yeah. And anything can happen in a fight. So if you were to tell me, and I'm trying and I'm, look, I'm trying not to be not try not to use the benefit of hindsight. Because it's real easy to look back, oh, of course, we've got the technological power. And even when you just I I threw out that little arrogant quote when you're like, they didn't think they could beat us technically, and I said, watch this. You know, I'm sitting here saying that. If you were to ask me, knowing what I know now hey, uh, who's going to win or wh- what kind of scrap is this going to be? You've got eight years worth of hardened combat veterans on the Iraqi side versus, and by the way, they're fighting in their home like turf versus these Americans. The last thing we did on a large scale was Vietnam, which we didn't like. Yeah. You know, We didn't like that. And now we're going toe-to-toe with these guys? that's a much tougher thing to think about. And yeah, I mean, we think about the generals at this time. All those generals, vast majority of these generals were Vietnam guys that were looking at this thing going, okay, I'll go, but we better hit them with overwhelming force. But yeah, I've never really thought that deeply about it, the fact that this was not a a given. And it ended up, the fact that it was so easy which when, is exactly what it was, and I'm curious. I mean, the 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 Iraqi soldiers just fell apart, fell apart, and ran. Yeah, it was like it, it, it's kind of crazy to think about. Why would you? Why didn't you fall apart and run from the Iranians? Our
1: biggest problem early on, in those first few days of the assault, became processing all the POWs who were surrendering. We were like, we don't really have the manpower to deal with all these people. And I think part of it was that you know, just in that massive choreographed airstrike at the beginning, we took out. All of their air defense, all of their communications, and just their whole—everything that linked their military structure together just went dark. And so every little unit that's spread around is now just out there on their own, basically. they got to send runners if they want to talk to somebody. And then the first Marines just rampages straight at them.
0: And and, and to your point, you know, this is, um, you know— This is the this is centralized command, right? This is this is not a bunch of, hey, I got cut off from my unit, but I know what the objective is and I'm going to carry it out regardless. That's not the Iraqi army. The Iraqi army is I'm not doing a damn thing.
1: I think most Arab armies are like, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I'm not doing a damn thing until I get told exactly what to do, because I'm not going to get
1: even still. It is crazy when you think about the fact that those juniors and colonel or generals and colonels and stuff, they knew that if their unit just decided to surrender, that it's going to be bad news for them. And yet, that's what happened in mass, mass, mass. Yeah, numbers.
0: it's 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 hard to understand the psychology behind that. Yeah. actually. And
1: it taught us some. You know, we learned some negative lessons from that as well. You know? Well,
0: yeah, we absolutely <laughs> learned some negative lessons from that. Mm. Although, it, it, I, I, I I don't know, right? I mean, let's face it. The be the opening, the opening um, salvos of of the invasion in 2003 yeah. were pretty much the same thing. I sure. mean, pretty much the same thing. There was, some, there, was, there was more resistance, obviously, as we pushed up. I mean, and again, I just had a guy on, Gunny Busser who, um, who was on the push-up. You know, Nazaria, there was a little hesitation, there was some, some fighting, but it was vastly massive surrender.
1: Yeah. I mean, the American military is, is something that's never been seen before. I mean, and even if you take the technology out of it, when you put the, just the communications and the coordination, the multi-force coordination, um, you know, it's crazy to me. how I used to play uh, paintball a lot with my friends, and we would go play paintball, and we were all fast. We were athletes, you know, whatever, and we would go out and play, and we would sometimes run into these fat old guys who had been playing together for a long time who just knew how to move. They knew mm-hmm. how to work together, cover and move and all that kind of stuff, and they would just butcher us. And it's insane how, how much of a difference just knowing what you're doing really makes. And uh, I, you know, I, how, how many times do you read about like, you know, um, Ranger unit in uh, Afghanistan ambushed by the Taliban? One Ranger wounded, 32 Taliban killed, you know, 52 like captured. And it's like, wait, I get that we have stealth bombers and satellites mm-hmm. and all that. But like this is still just dudes with guns, right? It's like, well, yeah, yeah, and no. I mean, American military is a buzzsaw that you just, you know, feed human beings into when it gets worked up. And uh but I think what I meant was it kind of gave us this lesson that like, man, not only is war easy? Yes. It's uh it's kind of it's politically uniting. You know, you remember back uh yeah. you remember back in the early 90s there was that music video Voices That Care. It was like every huge celebrity, the biggest people. I mean, it was Bono and Will Smith and I actually don't remember this at all oh, it was it would be the equivalent of today of like Katy Perry and T- Taylor Swift what was
0: it a, a, like a music video pro troops or something yeah it
1: was just sing to the troops voices that care we're thinking about you while you're over there something you could not imagine seeing today it's just a different environment <laughs> I was probably in
0: boot camp or something because I yeah. do not remember that at all
1: it, 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 you gotta watch it just for the different times because today it would be hard to imagine anything like that and especially from that class of people um and it was – so it was politically unifying, you know. It was kind of – we didn't lose much of anybody, you know. We uh, behaved ourselves very, very honorably, yeah. you know.
0: Um, yes, you are. Then I, then I accept your assessment that some bad lessons were learned, not so much about – yeah, about – about uh, we, we learned the lesson that this was going to be easy.
1: And then Kosovo reinforced that.
0: Yeah, Kosovo but, you know, reinforced that and all those people that said – You need boots on the ground in order to really affect change. Well, we went to Kosovo and no boots on the ground. Exactly. And you look up and you go, well,
1: there were also intelligence like lessons that we, you know, all the military, all the military guys who were hesitant at first. You had a lot of the civilian leadership who was looking at them like they were just kind of too cautious, Mm -hmm. a little too scared, a little too shocked by Vietnam, you know, and those experiences. So that when we got up to 2003, you had a lot of the military side saying, look, we got, this is not enough people to secure this country. We need 300,000, we need 400,000 people, we need this, we need that. And, you know, a lot of these same guys, in the Bush administration, were the same guys in yeah. lower level, mid level positions in the first Bush administration. They're like, wait, I've heard this before yeah. from you people. In fact, Colin Powell, who's Secretary of State now, who's the one who's telling us to be very, very careful here if we're going to go into Iraq. I've heard this from you before. You were cautious in the first Gulf War yeah. as well, and so you know there was a little bit of uh, a little bit of distrust be- between the totally. civilian
0: and, and military leadership that came in. Ah, that's really, um, really disturbing but it's such a no it's like as you, as you as you talk about it it's just like oh yeah i mean i see this all the time right i see this all the time from businesses from leaders that they don't have a good enough relationship they don't communicate to each other properly they don't explain things in a way that could be clear And instead of explaining they just get mad and they say you know i'm telling you you got to trust me and like that that, that all that's all, all that is it's 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 awful it's awful
1: yeah yeah, and um, you know, I think that uh, the intelligence side as well. You know, this nope, our intelligence did not see the invasion of Kuwait coming; it caught us off guard. And so, you you know, some of the civilian leadership lost trust with the intelligence community there. When nine eleven surprised us again, a lot of those same people come to distrust. You know, some of the intelligence establishment even more, and it was a little bit of a toxic relationship by the time you got to 2003 between you know the the brass at the DOD and some of these other places and the actual military leadership and the intelligence community leadership that i think you know there were we'll get into that and in then maybe the next uh, episode or or so that you know there there were some breakdowns in communication at the leadership level that that ended up filtering down to you guys on the ground and that's what i'm kind of interested in hearing about
0: is there anything else to to wrap up kind of pre Pre, like escalation of tensions leading into into uh, the invasion in O three.
1: I think we can probably uh, talk a little bit about it in the next episode. Um, we'll talk about how we kind of started that ball rolling after nine eleven, and I want to talk a little bit about what Iraq was up to in the nineties as well, and how we were dealing with them, and how it had become this kind of festering sore that we did not have a good solution for. You know that it was just sitting there. Um, because of the oil for food program and because of the way the sanctions were being cheated by a lot of countries in the most corrupt and ugliest ways, you know, just Saddam's regime is, you know, letting a lot of these countries, you know, just full corruption, take cuts from, like, the oil for food uh, sales, and then they're feeding billions of dollars back to Saddam's regime. Ugly stuff um, by people who are supposed to be our allies. And uh, so, you know, it creates a situation where you— Uh, You have this regime who's there, who's ruling through brutality and terror, who's not going anywhere. The sanctions are not going to work. And children are dying of starvation in the streets because of the sanctions. So a lot of people are starting to say, we can't keep this up. We can't just keep starving this population. Well, well, you? what are you going to do? You're going to say, oh, Saddam, you got us. All those UN resolutions— all, none of that means it. you won, you outlasted us, you outlasted the global community, right, the global order with all of these institutions behind it. You just you beat us, you outlasted us because you were willing to inflict such suffering on your own people to watch them starve while you and your regime took all the money that you were getting and used it to control them. And we just can't take watching this anymore. So, you know, we're just going to lift all this and, and it, it, you admit you won and create that precedent for other people like you going forward. Um, Or, you know, in a post-9-11 world, we can go in there and do something about it. And that was really, you know, the second Iraq war, if you want to put it that way, is a lot of people, and I think history will bear this out, it wasn't a second war. There were, were, uh, you know, two uh, ground fights, two, you know, uh, uh, moments of acute combat, in one long war with Saddam Hussein's regime,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, we were launching airstrikes at him all through the yeah. 1990s. In 1993, he tried to assassinate George H.W. Bush. This is after he's pre- he's not even president anymore, and he was visiting Kuwait, and Saddam sent a hit team over there to try to assassinate him. You know, a former American president, and so this guy is not cowed. You know, he is still causing problems for us. <laughs> And meanwhile, Iran is growing and becoming more dangerous, and, the, you know, uh, we we need a functional Iraq. If you look at a map of the Middle East, it is just right there in the middle of everything. And we need it to be somewhat functional, but we can't help it be functional as long as this guy's in control because we can't build him up. And so what do you do? And um, people are going to be debating, you know, long after we get done with this— uh, the, you know what the right thing to do what there was, but I think people oversimplify what our options were
0: Yeah, and it, again, it's Well two things one thing I want to correct is I, I said that a guy that I had in the podcast was in the first goal four, and I Actually, I was in my mind. I was thinking but no He was on the push-up, but he had guys that had been in the first goal for that kind of they they helped them along and and Then I'm thinking about this and again, I, I just to frame this up you know, some people say that I'm like a driven person, right? No. A- and, and, you know, and, and I, I, I am, you know, there's, I, I want to do things and I want to, you know, I, I, when somebody says, you know, what's your goal? I'll be like, take over the world, right? Ha ha, fun, fun. Like, yeah, there's some, there's a hint of truth in there because I want to go out and make things happen. But, you know, I'm not looking to take over the world in a literal sense. And then you think about Saddam and you and you like uh, so I'm thinking about it from my perspective as you're talking through all this stuff I'm thinking you know I, I like to you know as I was reflecting back on what I told you earlier is like hey aren't you good like you've got a country you've taken over you got billions of dollars worth of assets you fought a long war like even me I think I'd look around and be like all right you know what I'll I'll go ahead and we'll just call this Success. I've got my own nation. I've got billions of dollars. I'll call it good, but it's not good enough.
1: Is actually there is one thing that we did uh, leave out. We talked about a little bit earlier, but um, is that after the war is over, on his way out, out of spite, he lights up all the Kuwaiti oil wells just to blacken the sky. Uh, creates the biggest oil spill in human history by open up the valves. In Kuwait and sending it out into the into the Persian Gulf and then and this is really where you got a lot of people who were after 9-11 really 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 looking for Saddam's throat in the United States um, is we had told the people of Iraq, meaning sort of the Shia uh, population in the South, the Kurds in the north, rise up against Saddam Hussein, you know yeah that's and right. we thought that he would be overthrown in kind of a natural way. We were also talking to his generals and whoever else, but we may, you know, that wasn't going to happen. The Sunni population wasn't going to turn on him to hand over control to the Shiites. That's not going you know, to happen. So we're talking to the Shia population in the south, the Kurds in the north, rise up against Saddam, and they do. And we just watch from across yeah, yeah. the border as he annihilates them, You know, kills, we don't actually know, maybe 180,000 people all told. But for sure, 100,000, and we are right across the border in Kuwait, easily with the ability to stop it from happening to the Shiites. He drives, I mean, scores of thousands of Kurds—this is what you were reading about earlier—up into the mountains. This is in uh, January and February. They're going to freeze to death. They're going to starve to death. He's massacring these people, using human, women and children as human shields as he goes into their villages. Threatening, using them as hostages, saying, I'm going to kill these women and children. If the men don't stay put, they stay put. He massacres all the men. Um, and so all of these Kurds flee up into the mountains. And we have junior, uh, you know, State Department, Defense Department uh, officials at the time, guys like Paul Wolfowitz, who would be Donald Rumsfeld's deputy by the time we get to 2003, who were like, if I get another crack at this guy, I am mm-hmm. taking mm-hmm. him out And um, because they felt like we betrayed those people. And we 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 did, did. you know. Um, And, of course, we we went in to help the Kurds afterwards. You know, as they were getting pushed out, Operation Provide Comfort, we start dropping supplies to them, and it starts out as that. But then we're like, well, what are we going to do with these people? And Turkey's like, you know, keeping Kurds here, right? And so we're like, well, people were worried that if we set them up in like a, uh, you know, in a refugee camp somewhere that it would turn into another Palestinian situation. So finally we were like, let's just— Push the Iraqi army back far enough so that these people can go back to their homes, and so we did that. And the Kurds moved in back to their homes, and we were like, "Well, now we kind of inherited the responsibility to protect these people," and we did that, and it was awesome.
0: Was it Southern Watch? That was Operation Southern Watch. Yeah,
1: and I, uh, um, I don't remember actually. I, I don't remember. Um, I don't. I thought it was a part of provide comfort. Like, yeah, 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 it might have been provide it was provide comfort. comfort and provide comfort to— and it was amazing. It worked perfectly. Like the Kurds created one of the best places in the Middle East besides Israel. I mean, just a great place up there in Erbil, considering mm-hmm. the neighborhood. And that was another lesson that we took that like, oh, okay, if we can just go in there and get rid of the bad people, yeah. then the good people can come in and just build up a nice little society. here.
0: It's that idea of if I can just, if we can just tip the scales, right, if we can just tip the scales. And I, I... I, I I don't know where I originally heard this from, but it was somebody that had direct relations with uh Cuba. Like someone that was Cuban or parents were Cuban and had been passed down this lore which was when all the Cubans in America were saying, "Hey, look, all we need to do is start this thing off and the you know, everyone, the Cubans will rebel against Fidel Castro and will free Cuba." And you know, the story was it was like all the Cubans that were saying that, and all the Cubans, and it was a lot of Cubans that were saying that, all of them that were saying that were in America. (laughs) And so they're saying, yeah, don't worry. And as soon as they got down there, the Cubans that were in Cuba were like, what are you doing? No, this is Cuba, we don't want you here. And it's not quite the same situation, but the idea that you can tip the scales, the idea that just gonna take a little bit to tip the scales is is the, the feeling that you get when you're on the outside looking in, and it looks like, hey, if we just apply enough pressure here, there's, they can rise up against them.
1: And yet that, that is all true. And yet I think that, and we'll get into this, we'll talk about some of those bad decisions we started to talk about in the last episode, up, that when we went in in 2003, that was a winnable fight. And it was winnable early, I think. I really do. <laughs> I think it was something that it would have taken a long time. You know, It would have taken some, some dedication as far mm-hmm. as timeline went, some presence. But um, I think that, uh, that what that war turned into had a lot to do with decisions that, that we made once we were there.
0: There's no doubt about it. And I guess we can get on those, get into those decisions and that war next time. So if you want to support this podcast, you can check out our other podcasts. I have Jocko Podcasts, The Warrior Kid Podcast, and The Grounded Podcast, and Daryl's got a padca- podcast called Murder Made. And if you want to support all these podcasts, then one thing you can do to help out is go and get some gear from JockoStore.com or get some gear from OriginMain.com. Got all kinds of stuff on there. Thanks for listening as things unravel. This is Jocko and Daryl. Out.